pray for our people who have needs in their lives. We pray for families that are suffering. We pray for marriages that are in distress. We pray for our people with some type of addiction. And Lord, we uh, pray that you would liberate captives today and you would set them free. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the redemption we have in Christ. Thank you for the heavenly home that awaits us. And thank you, Lord, in the meantime, that as the song says, you leave your spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, until the work is done. And so we pray that we would remain faithful unto them, unto them. And we pray this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, if you take your Bibles this morning and let's go to uh, 2 Samuel and we're in the 12th chapter and we're going to move along in all of this as we think about how terrible it is when a believer finds themselves committing any kind of sin, of course, but especially the kind that hurts our testimony, the kind that captivates us, the kind that uh, just saps the life out of us. And that's where David found himself. It's been now uh, since the end of chapter 11 to the beginning of chapter 12, somewhere uh, nine months or so to a year, depending on um, whenever the baby uh, that Bathsheba was pregnant with, whenever he was born. And uh, something happens in David's life where he finally confesses his sin. Now, the King James phrase in there, it sounds more authoritative and spiritual when Nathan says to David, thou art the man. You know, typically in our culture when somebody says, hey, you're the man, that's a compliment, right? Somebody makes a good play, uh, they do something that is heroic, they do something that is uh, good for the company or whatever. Oh, hey, you're the man, you're the man. Well, in this case, this was not a good thing. This was a very confrontive thing. This was a very negative type thing and a kind of a judgmental type thing. You know, everybody says we're not supposed to judge. Well, there's a time for judging whether something is good or bad, right or wrong in our own life as well as we can look at the lives of others and uh, see what something is. And this is a point where God is going to be the one to send Nathan. Nathan wasn't just walking along in the palace and said, Oh, I'm ticked off at David and I think I'm going to do something. It's not that at all. We're going to find in the very first verse here that this was all of God. You talk about controlling the times and the seasons. It says uh, in verse 1 of chapter 12, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Let that sink in. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe or female lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It was a household pet, in other words, and uh, ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man 
who refused to take from his own flock, remember he had a lot, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now we get down to verse 5. How's David going to react to this? Because David, after all, had that background. He took care of sheep. He knew what it was to be attached to them, probably named them. He was around them. He knew the struggle that it was to have a lamb like the poor man did. And he knew what it meant to the poor man. Perhaps the poor man was going to breed that sheep someday and have more lambs. Perhaps he needed the wool and he was going to sell the wool or something like that. How is David going to react? Now, you and I know the story. If you know your Bible, you know this story. But I'm going to ask you to put that aside for a second and just think, how is this going to hit the shepherd of Israel, King David? And here's how it comes along. So David's anger was greatly aroused. He went into a rage, in other words, against the man. He thinks this is a true story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, isn't he spiritual? As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Uh, okay, that seems a little much for something like this. Verse 6, and he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Isn't it interesting? He said he's going to die and then he's going to restore. I don't know how that works. But notice what really got to David. He had no pity. Pot, meat, kettle. But David doesn't know this yet. Have you ever known somebody who was in sin and they just became so insensitive? Calloused? Unaware? Stupid? David doesn't even see this. Because it says in verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, Now I want you just to picture as his heart skips a beat, as uh, the adrenaline comes up, as the fear comes up, and all of that. You are the man, or you are that man. That one you want to die that one you want to restore, that one you are condemning because he has no pity, that's you. In other words, Nathan could have said something like this, look in the mirror, look in the mirror, and David breaks. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, both. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed, murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword... 
You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. There are going to be consequences. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, your own kids, your own family, your own offspring, your own relatives, in other words. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You like sexual sin so much? Wait until it goes against you, in other words. Verse 12, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say much, does he? What more could you say? How do you defend this? He's been eating David alive all this time. Now it's come out. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, talk about gracious. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I mean, keep in mind, folks, by Israel's law, David is worthy of capital punishment, of execution under the law of God. He should have been stoned. And God is going to be merciful to him. Say, why was he being merciful to him? I can't answer that question any more than I can. Why is he merciful to you and to me? However, the consequences get a little rougher. Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and that's what our sin does. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his own house. You know, it's so easy to think about David and to think about everything that is going on here. But I want you to think just for a moment about what about all the innocent people? What about the, oh, some people might say the collateral damage? You think about the fact that Joab, the general, is now involved in this. And it's Joab that gave David's order to put Uriah on the front lines. So he's killed. And he's killed by the sword of the Ammonite people. It's, uh, you know, the thing where David has, what about the messengers who went to go get Bathsheba? What about the person who told him who Bathsheba was? Uh, all of this kind of stuff that comes on. And what about Nathan himself? It says at the very end, so Nathan departed to his own house. How do you think Nathan felt? He loved David. He was a friend of David's. This is not the last time you'll see him if you read through 2 Samuel. He also is there at the end of David's life when there is a rebellion that is brewing among one of David's other sons. And David, think about all of the suffering he has to go through because of all of this, through the 
uh, one of his sons raping a half-sister. And because David feels just morally neutral on all of this, it, 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 he just is um, you know, unable to really do anything. I mean, who is he to speak up and be a moral authority against his son when everybody knows what he has done? And because of that, Absalom, another son, is just so enraged that David didn't do anything that he not only murders his half-brother, but then he goes on a rampage against David, and David has to run for his life. And when it says in there, a neighbor is going to lie with your wives in the, uh, uh, then the son, basically, it's going to be open, in other words. That's David's son that does that to David's wives and concubines when David has to flee for his life. I mean, this whole thing is horrible. And what does God say? It's because you're reaping what you have sown. David knew better. David didn't have to do that. If David had just stopped and thought for a moment, but all he could think of was his own lustful desires and the idea that I'm the king, I'm smart, I've been leading people into battle, I can strategize, I can get out of this without anybody knowing. Famous last words, no one will ever know. And you'll notice here that God has given David time, time to repent. You know, uh, why didn't David come right after this happened because David's just like you what is the first thing you do normally I mean I know there are probably exceptions but normally when someone points out that you're wrong you shift the blame it wasn't my fault it was somebody else and we get defensive and we come up with excuses and that's what David would have done you got to give people sometimes time to repent Sometimes we want instant results. That rarely ever happens, especially when you're dealing with sin. Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time admitting that something was your fault? Is your first nature to push it to someone else or to make an excuse for something? That's not a good characteristic, by the way. But congratulations, you're normal. And so God gives David time to stew. And he lets it simmer all of this time. Now David during this time is trying so hard to act like nothing is wrong. Had you talked to David during that time like a Nathan the prophet and said, David, how's your spiritual life going? Oh, oh, praise God, it's great. And the words would fall empty and hollow. Maybe like yours do. Maybe everything you do when you talk about the Lord is way in the past. But it's been so long since anything mattered and meant anything in your spiritual life that even today you feel empty and hollow and distant from the Lord. But you're not going to let anybody know that. You're not going to talk about that because that would make you look bad. So you, you sing with gusto. You come to church. You don't really like it, but you come. And you make sure that the cover-up goes on, that nobody really, really knows what really is going on. That's David. And David is hurting during this time, and yet he doesn't go to anybody. He doesn't get any help. He doesn't have anybody pray for him. He doesn't seek any counsel. 
He just carries on like nothing is wrong. Can you imagine him singing in the tabernacle? Can you imagine him leading in a prayer before a meal? Can you imagine people that come to him? Because one of the jobs of the king was to settle lawsuits between people. And if a king was godly, he would settle the lawsuits according to the law of God. Can you imagine what it was like when somebody came before David and said, I want a divorce because my husband has been unfaithful to me? Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine what it was like when somebody said, I uh, am charging this person with murder? Can you imagine what that did to David's own soul and what it did to his emotions, what it did to his life? And so David is in a bad, bad place when this all happens and yet we find the opening gives us some information that we need to know the Lord sent Nathan to David the Lord sent Nathan to David this is a part of David's chastisement this is the Lord loving David this is the Lord that is going to get David right with him whatever it might take this is the Lord who is going to teach David and us something through this whole situation. And so uh, the Lord makes a big deal about the fact that you did this in secret. Now it's out in the open. David, you don't have anything to hide anymore. Everybody knows. There's a story about a little kid and he and his sister were left alone while the mom went across the street to the neighbors and she had just baked cookies and put them in the cookie jar. And the last word she said was, stay out of the cookies, therefore later. Well, the little boy, I mean, you know how it is. He could smell them. He could just taste them. They seemed to be calling his name. And he went over to the cookie jar and he opened it up. <coughs> and he thought, well, I'll just look. I'll just look at them. Oh, they look good. Chocolate chip. Oh, man. And then he thought, well, Mama didn't say I couldn't touch one. And so he picks up the cookie. And he said, Mama didn't say I couldn't smell it. And oh, my goodness, it was just, you know what I mean? And then before long, he takes a bite out of it. And as sisters would do, she said, I'm going to tell and he said no 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 no! please please whatever you do don't tell don't tell mama she goes okay I won't but I've got to clean my room and guess what I'm not going to do it you're going to do it for me and I mean she blackmailed him into all of that every chore she had for the next week she would just Mama would say to the daughter, you do this. And she would look at her brother and, his, and her brother would go, I'll do that. And Mama thought, what a nice young man. It was a cover-up, wasn't it? And he was so tired of doing his chores and his sister's chores. And finally, he could take it no more. And he goes to his mom and says, Mom, i got to tell you something. When you said, don't eat the cookie, she goes, he says, I did. I did. The next time Mama told the daughter, here's what you have to do, she looked at him and he looked back with defiance and said, Mama knows. <laughs> Took away all of her leverage, didn't it? 
You see, we don't understand that when we cover up our sins, we're giving the enemy leverage against us to condemn us, to mess with us. And he does it under the threat of we don't want anyone to know. And uh, I think that's normal. I think that's even a good thing. You don't want everybody knowing everything. There are some things that are just between you and God and they need to stay that way. We don't need to know. But there are some things that are not simply between just you and God and uh, things need to be made right. This is the case with David. He had involved too many people in this. There were innocent people that were involved in it. And uh, all of this is happening. And you've given, Nathan said, the enemies of the Lord the opportunity to blaspheme. That, that, that's a heavy, heavy, heavy charge. God said, you've despised, you've taken lightly and overlooked my law. And then he says later, you've actually taken me lightly and for granted. And so God is going to assert his authority and his sovereignty and his righteousness and his judgment. And he's going to bring it to where David is not going to be able to fake it anymore. He's going to be exposed as the hypocrite that he has been in this whole situation. And so the first thing that we want to see out of this is the Lord hates sin. He hates your sin. The little ones as well as the big ones. It's not just when we murder somebody. It's not just when we commit adultery with somebody. It's not just when we cover things up. It's everything. That fleeting thought he hates that bad motive, all of those things. He hates all sin. And uh, somebody says, well, you know, God just says all sin is the same. No, some sin, he says, is an abomination. He hates it all, but some he hates worse than others. And so uh, we forget that sometimes. And because we're so used to grace and we're so used to mercy, we, we forget the fact that the reason we have grace and mercy is because God hates sin so badly and what the enemy has done, the tempter has done so badly that that's one of the reasons that motivated him to send his son to destroy sin and to destroy the works of the devil and to liberate you. It's a very loving thing that God hates sin. And so God out of love, sends Nathan to David. David's not going to do anything with his sin. It's been month after month after month after month after month. He's faking it and faking it and faking it, going through the motions, going through the motions. And uh, God says to Nathan, go to David and confront him about this sin that I hate and that I hate so badly. So the Lord sent Nathan. Now David is defensive and he is doing nothing but just kind of uh, self-preservation, I guess you would say, at this. He had plenty of time to repent. And um, so David confront, uh, Nathan confronts him. Now, you notice his reaction to that little story. He's furious about all of this. He's out of control. And uh, he comes out and blurts out, as the Lord lives, you know, a spiritual cover can't let anybody know I'm not really all that in tune with the Lord. But as the Lord lives, he who has done this shall surely die. A little extreme for the stealing of a lamb. The next part's in line. That's what the law of Moses says. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb. 
And uh, it is wrong that he had no pity. That's right. But the capital punishment is a little bit extreme. And uh, that's why I would say this. Nate, uh, pardon me. David is just simply putting on a show. He's got to be the righteous one. He's got to be the one who has righteous indignation, you know. People say that. You better be careful. My righteousness is indignated right now and, you know, that kind of thing. No, it really wasn't righteous indignation, was it? He's putting on a front, putting on a show. He's got to be tough. He's got to be strong. He's got to be righteous. He's got to stand up for that which really matters, right? Kill that man. That man shall die. Little, little extreme there. And it just kind of gives me a clue that David has been through so much and is so out of fellowship with God, he's in no frame of mind to make any judgment about anybody else at all. You ever been there? You ever been so angry because you're out of fellowship with God and you were just looking around for somebody? I mean, David didn't want to die and he deserved to die. And so how is he going to cover that? How is he going to make his conscience feel better? He's going to get angry and kill somebody who doesn't deserve to die to kind of assuage his own conscience to appear to be something that he's not look God hates fakery it's amazing you can go to God with your sin and he'll forgive you and he'll have mercy on you he is a sympathetic high priest right willing and eager to forgive but you start playing games with him and you start covering things up and you start being a hypocrite and you start pouring out all of your guilty conscience venom and, and bile on everybody else. I mean, it's amazing how many times I've seen even preachers who get so stinking rough on other people only to find out that they had secret sin in their own life. It's one of those things that we tend to do. And God hates that as much as he hates any sin. And uh, yet we try to play the game and to go on like that. I want you to notice that the Lord also convicts of sin in verses 7 through 12. And some things that you notice about this. The story was a fictional story, but it was designed to bring David out. And to expose him. You are that man, Nathan said. Boy, that hit David like a ton of bricks. Because when David said, as the Lord lives, that man shall die. You're that man. You're going to execute yourself? Call for the guards to take you off and stone you? What, what, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do with this, David? Because you're the person I'm talking about in an allegorical form. You're the one who did this when you stole Bathsheba from Uriah. You're the one who did this when you had Uriah murdered. You're the one who ought to die. No wonder in Psalm 51, when David prays about this to the Lord, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Deliver me from execution is what he's saying here. Because the Lord brought that conviction. And boy, it's one thing. It's not like David didn't know this was wrong. But David's not going to convict himself. You and I don't do that either. We make excuses and defenses, as I mentioned earlier. But now at this point, you are that man. Oh, it cut him to the quick. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? And you'll notice that the characteristics of the conviction of the Lord is it was direct 
You see, when the Holy Spirit is convicting you, you don't get this vague, something's wrong. God doesn't do that. Did you ever play the game when you were a kid where you're trying to find an object somebody else named and then they would tell you, you're getting warmer. Oh no, you're getting cold. You're getting hot. You're getting very hot. You're trying to find it and, and look around like that, but you don't know what the thing is. Some people act like that's the way the Lord is, that he just goes, something's wrong. Oh, oh Lord, is it this? You're getting warmer. You'll notice here that the Lord didn't spare anything with David. He made it very, very direct. It was very specific. He told David what he had done. He illustrated it for him. David had absolutely no doubt as to what this was about and what he was in trouble for. And notice it was current. The Lord doesn't bring up sins that are already under the blood. He remembers them no more, the Bible says. Now, demons will be vague, and demons will make accusation with non-specific stuff, and they'll bring up things from your past that are already under the blood, but not God. God brings them up, and they're direct, they're specific, they are current. In Psalm uh, 32, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is not covered. Blessed is the man uh, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit for when I kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer Selah but I acknowledged my sin to you I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's Psalm 32. That was written while David about David during his time before and then just after Nathan confronted him. He was miserable in his sin. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And he kept trying to live with business as usual. Things were just normal. No big deal. I'm okay. David, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Why do you ask? You ever talk to anybody like that? And you go, whoa, why'd that make you mad? That would have been David. Day and night. It affected him physically, it affected him spiritually, it affected him emotionally. That's David until he finally got it right. you got to uncover it before the Lord. Now I want you to notice the next point is that the Lord brings sinning believers to confession. And confession is more than just admitting your sin. Admitting your sin is the first step but it, is, it actually means agreeing with God. Have you gotten to that point? Not a, oh, I did it and, you know, I just live with it. No, you've got to agree with God about the sin. And it's turning away from sin. We call that repentance. Confessing and forsaking. Solomon said, David's son, by the way, in Proverbs 28, 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And that's what we've got to do. The next point tells us that the Lord covers the sin. The Lord covers. The Lord is angry. The Lord convicts. The Lord confronts. The Lord disciplines. The Lord deals with it. But you know what? 
If you and I are having to atone for our sins, you know, you see all the time on TV, somebody, I made a mistake, let me go back in so I can redeem myself. It may be a player in a ball game, it may be a cop who messed up or something like that. I need to redeem myself. Can I just tell you, bad news, you can't. Not before God. You can't redeem yourself. Every time you try to redeem yourself, you make yourself just more dirty, more hypocritical, more out of fellowship with God. You've got to have what we sang about it. There is a redeemer, and it's not you. It is the Lord and his sacrifice. And it's interesting that when David confesses his sins, the first thing Nathan says is, the Lord has put this sin away from you. The Lord has covered it. You're not going to die. That's an amazing thing to me because when I think about all of the things that I've thought, I think about things that I've wanted that have been wrong. I think about the things that maybe I didn't want. I heard a song one time that uh, says, Lord, I'll surrender to you. I'll do anything you want me to do, but please don't send me to Africa. That's not really surrender, is it? I'll do anything you say except you can't do that. It's got to be an unconditional surrender. I surrender all is the song that we sing. Not some, not most. I surrender all. That's what the Lord is looking for. And when David confesses his sin, Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. And I want you to think about what the Lord has put away. And when it says he put it away, we know, because we know the New Testament, where did he put that sin? Every thought, every evil, every bad motive, every foul word, everything that you have ever done in deed or anything that you have done in your thought life was all put away from you and it was put on the innocent Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus bore that sin for you so that in the book of Colossians, Paul says that all of your sins, past, present, and future, are already paid for. They're already forgiven. That's why you're eternally secure in Christ. Well, what about 1 John 1, 9? What about the confession of sin? That's what brings you into where you can enjoy the forgiveness of God and have it applied to your life, have it applied to your soul, have it applied to your conscience, have it applied to everything that you do. You see, it's like that little kid that found such relief when he finally, his sister looked at him and he said, Mama knows, Mama knows. Well, it's not like God is like the mama who didn't know. Of course he knows. He knows everything. But there is something about getting right with God and putting it up there so when the enemy accuses you, when they come against you, when they begin to threaten you, when they use it as leverage against you, you can look at them and say, He knows and it's paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means when it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the sin is covered, and by the word of their testimony. I have confessed that to the Lord, and it is clear I'm right with him. You have no weapon, you have no leverage against me anymore. And so we think about what happened here. The Lord himself covered it. I want to close 
with a lengthy quote from John Piper about this. And it says, and it's on the screen too. So confessing our sin is the agreement with God that we have sin and that it must be fought and killed. See, that's important. The Bible says mortify that. Put it to death. Are you doing that? See, some people just, well, I did it, and then we live on, but we don't kill it. That's why we confess, so that we know what we're dealing with, and we go to war against it. Let me continue on. If we don't confess this truth that we're living, John says in an, uh, we're living in an illusion. We're lying. We're deceived. We're calling God a deceiver. And if, or pardon me, we're calling God a deceiver and we're not saved. Saved people can't do that. If we believe we have no sin and that it doesn't need to be killed, we are living in an illusion, not in salvation. So confession of sin is not the basis of your forgiveness. That would be the death of Christ. It is one of the traits that show we are truly in Christ where all of our sins are covered by his blood. See, you don't confess your sins to get forgiven. You confess your sins because you have been forgiven. You don't battle against sin in order to get saved. You fight and mortify sin because you have been saved. And if you're a believer in Christ... You have to take God seriously because he says, if we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves. Are you living in an illusion? But God deals with sin and God confronts sin. God hates sin. And yet God also covers sin and he covers it with the blood of his own son. Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life so he could die for you and your sin. And God hates sin so much, he punished his own innocent son for the things that you have done or not done or thought or were motivated by. Even if you did the right thing, you had the wrong motive. And all of that was put upon Jesus so that he could utter the words, Tetelestai. The debt is paid, finished, completed, done. And then he gave up his spirit and rose from the dead and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father where the one with nail scars in his hands and feet and the spear scar in his side for your sins is the one that instead of accusing you, he defends you and he prays for you and he is actually sympathetic toward you, the one who caused his wounds. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Isn't that amazing? So I want to ask you today. Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord? You don't have any hope except for the blood of Jesus Christ. Will you turn from your sin today? 
And will you trust in Him that He died on the cross for you, that He paid for your sin debt in full, that He rose from the dead, and you'll surrender to Him and quit trying to live on your own and running your life, and you will surrender to Him as Lord today. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you? Will you? And for those of you who are believers... What kind of game are you playing and do you think it doesn't matter and do you think God doesn't care and do you think he doesn't know? There's a Nathan headed your way. And my advice to you would be what I would advise David if I could. Why don't you get this right with God before Nathan comes into your life? How much easier this would have been. How much better it would have been if he had just taken it to the Lord as he should have. But he stubbornly continued all of that time. And then when Nathan came into his life, what was secret now became very, very public, embarrassing, humiliating, and well-known. Can you imagine what David's enemies were saying about him now? Oh, what a great psalmist. Write us another psalm, David. You got one for us? How about writing us a song about adultery? Why don't you write us a song about murder? I mean, in other words, country music. Right? Write us a song about all of that. The Lord's not going to allow it to go on in your life. Why? Because he loves you just as you are. And he loves you so much, he's not going to let you stay that way. He's got better things that he has in store for you. It's called sanctification so that you can actually live by his grace and for his glory. David had a day awaiting him when it all came out because he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to go to war against it. So I ask you today, what is it in your life that you cherish? What's that hidden lust that is in there that you don't really want to deal with? In fact, you kind of like it. And I just want to ask you a a question today. Are you a Christian? Are you truly saved? Because you ought to consider that. Oh, 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 yes, I am, Brother Greg. I am truly a Christian. Well, could you still be called a Christian if everybody here could see what was in your mind, what was in your heart, what you really cherish? And you probably ought to deal with that before you leave because thou art the man. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be unto God For his unspeakable gift whereby he covers our sins with his own blood. Heavenly Father, some people here need to confess Christ as Lord and be saved. I pray that they would. Some people in here need to get serious about sin that they joke about, they laugh about, they even admit. But they haven't gone to war against it. Call your people to battle today against our own sin that it might be mortified in our mortal bodies for your glory. And I include myself in that. Let us be pure before you in our daily lives and pure before the world in the way that we live and act and think so that others might see Jesus in us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen.